Let us hear the word of the Lord. Today's Old Testament reading is from Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 24. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become booty. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us choose a captain and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the Israelites. And Joshua, son of Nun and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the Israelites, The land that we went through as spies is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are no more than bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But the whole congregation threatened to stone them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent, of meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me, and how long will they refuse to believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for in your might you brought up this people from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of the land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go in front of them, in a pillar of cloud by day, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people all at one time, then the nations who have heard about you will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land he swore to give them that he has slaughtered them in the wilderness. And now, therefore, let the power of the Lord be great in the way you promised when you spoke, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children to the third and the fourth generation. Forgive the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you pardon this people from Egypt even until now. Then the Lord said, I do forgive, just as you have asked. Nevertheless, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, None of the people who have seen my glory and the signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have tested me these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their ancestors. None of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me wholeheartedly, 
I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would meet us as we think on these words of Scripture, this story from Israel's life, and we might know how we appropriate it inside of our own context, our own moment of wilderness wandering, and our own struggles in life, um, our ambivalence about surrendering to you and to your love. So would you meet us, Father, Son, and Spirit, in these words of Scripture and help us to know how we might respond in faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. So uh, the theologian Robert Jensen, uh, some of you have heard us refer to him before, a, a, little, uh, a little book that he wrote called A Theology and Outline. It's a wonderful introduction to Christian theology. If you've never read it or picked it up, it's very accessible. I encourage you to think about reading it at some point. But one of the things that he describes of God in that book when he's thinking about what does it mean when we talk about theology, he just looks at the story of Scripture beginning to end, and he says, what do we discover about this God? What is He like? He is a God that strikes up a conversation with humanity. He is always calling someone out. He is always in the pages of Scripture asking people to engage some ideas, some notion of their own calling, their own future. Um, and that's who he is. And then he correspondingly asked the question, when we say that human beings, people like us, are created in the image and the likeness of God, what do we mean by that? And he says simply this, it's this idea that we are animals, but we're the kind of animal creature that could actually engage God in a real conversation. And that's what we see in the pages of Scripture. It's a beautiful and a straightforward and almost a very simple observation of what does it mean to be human and what does it mean when we speak of God. 
the wilderness story is one of those places of conversation where God is engaging from the very beginning. You see it with Moses, right? God has heard the cry of his people, a voice in slavery, and he responds by calling Moses up to go and ask Pharaoh to deliver his people from slavery and bring them into a place of new worship with God himself. And that happens initially in the space of the wilderness. And as we've said week after week, the, what the wilderness does is it strips out the props of life and it moves us into a space of crisis in many ways in which we have a new discovery of who God is and a new discovery correspondingly of who we are vis-a-vis -vis God in this relationship. Now this week, in this moment of sort of real-time conversation in the wilderness, the people respond to the report that we looked at last week of the spies, right? You remember, there's the majority report. The land looks very good, but we dare not go in there because it will overwhelm us. It'll kill us, it'll destroy us. And then you had Caleb and Joshua's minority report in which they said, no, the Lord will give us the land, let's trust him. He moves, we move, right? This formation in the wilderness of learning to respond to God's presence, to attend to his nearness and to his goodness and to his love. Here, the people reject the minority report, Caleb and Joshua's report, and they side with the majority, not surprisingly. And they side with them, and as you read, read through the, as, as Whitney was reading through the, the narrative of the scripture there, which was quite long, right? Uh, as she was reading through the narrative of that story, what do you discover is that they, uh, they, eventually they want to reject their leaders themselves. They reject Moses, essentially. They want another leader that would take them back into the land of Egypt. They uh, begin to imagine that it would have just been better off for them if God had never heard their cry. If the exodus had never happened, would that we have died in Egypt or that we just die in this wilderness, then move with this God into this promised land flowing with milk and honey. Their response is a multifaceted response of rejection. It's not, it's moved beyond, well beyond sort of ambivalence around our surrender to God. It's moved into a space of rejection of surrender to God. So I want you to think about this. Have you ever experienced relational rejection from someone, right? I ask that, it's an odd, it's, it, of course you have, right? You can think of some space in which you've offered love or you've offered friendship or you've offered kindness and you've been shunned, you've been pushed off, you've been rebuffed, you've been rejected. How does that feel? To live in relationships in which our advances are not requited in which our display of love or our display of competency, even in a work context, is not picked up and affirmed and moved with, it's rejected. We don't get the promotion. We didn't get into the university of our choice. We didn't get the job of our choice. We don't get married. We don't, and on and on and on it goes, all of the different ways in which you and I experience rejection. The people here reject God's relational nearness. Better that we'd stayed in Egypt and you'd never heard our cries. So let's think about our struggle with surrendering to God's presence and his nearness that of course terrifies us. So think about this in two ways. So this text shows us 
arguing prayer, the beauty really of arguing prayer, because that's what Moses is doing here. And then it exposes us to a greater glory of God, a greater experience of God. So first, arguing prayer. Verse 5, Moses, as they, uh, Moses and Aaron, as they have heard the response of the people, what do they do? They fall on their faces before the assembly of Israel, right? This is a pattern that you see with Moses frequently. It's not unusual for him or for Aaron to fall on their faces when something uh, sort of dramatic is happening in the assembly. But I want you to think about it this way. What is happening in this particular moment with Moses and Aaron is that they're leaning into the substance of their knowledge of who God is. In other words, they're leaning in or they're leading out of their own humble relationship with God. This is a posture and a practice of surrender, their own surrender to who they know God to be, to His love, to His holding people accountable for things even. There's this complexity of the relationship. But it begins, their leadership begins in this vulnerable space of their own surrender to God. So it's interesting to think about when we think about our own leadership inside of the church or inside of our workspaces or inside of our families, maybe one of the things that you and I need to be thinking about about the concept of leadership itself is that it really needs to begin with our own surrender to the God of love, that that's how we lead God's people. That's how we sort of lead in the world with a different expression of our own human, humanness, our own humanity is by a sense of God's nearness to us. Notice God's response, verse 11. How long will this people despise me? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So in other words, God is responding to the people and responding to Moses and Aaron's humility before God, right? That's what God is doing. He's continuing the conversation. Robert Alter says of this particular part of the text, he says, God is clearly fed up with his people. Done. He also suggests that there could be the subtlety of a test here for Moses himself, which is a curious way to think about this particular text, right? This is a test of Moses' humility. What would you do if someone offered you the exclusive opportunity to be the one through whom God would reboot humanity? He would change the world through you. That's essentially what God seems to be offering Moses in this moment. God seems poised to do something as well that C.S. Lewis will describe in his book, uh, The The Great Divorce, where he writes this. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. This seems to be one of those latter moments in the life of Israel. God seems to have come to the end of the rope with his people, and he says essentially, okay, have it your way. Have it your way life without me. Moses resists any temptation to be that guy. He will not be the one through whom God offers this exclusive opportunity to reboot humanity. And Moses begins instead to argue with God in prayer and conversation, right? Conversation to be real with any person that you would interact with has to be mutual. It goes back and forth. And that's what God and Moses engage in here this back and forthness of conversive reality. They're speaking to one another, and Moses is arguing with God. In other words, he's countering God's conclusions, but from the space 
of radical surrender to the God of love. Moses says of this, of this God, he says, look, everyone might uh, expect a God to do this. They might expect God to give up on his people. They might expect him to blot them out. But you're not just any God. You're a God that speaks of this Hebrew word hesed. You're a God who engages in this practice of covenantal or relational fidelity. That's who you are. How will giving up on your people reveal that characteristic of yourself? Moses' arguing prayer, I think, reveals a real depth of knowledge of God. And it's a depth of knowledge of God that doesn't just come to him sort of in the, it, it's, a, it's not just a sort of a magical knowledge of God. It's not just an immediate knowledge of God. This is a knowledge of God that has been formed and shaped in Moses through his practices of life with God in the wilderness that included what? His own moments of unbelief. His experience of, as the psalmist, we, as a psalm we read earlier, his own dustness, his own fragility, his own struggle with God, his own moments of failure with God, and they will continue to happen, by the way. Moses is formed by this wilderness spiritual experience such that he knows God differently. And that's so important that we begin to understand, and this is Moses' argument that our hope has to be that God relates to us on some other basis than our own necessary getting it right. God must relate to his people who are dust on the basis of grace and mercy. And so Moses appeals to God to reveal that grace and mercy, to show himself as gracious and merciful and think about this, if God didn't make a judgment about these things, if he just let things go on, if he just sort of turned a blind eye to injustice in our world or to the way that we, we relate to him or the way we relate to one another, if he just did this, what would happen? It would be the, this just the affirmation that you and I live in a world in which injustice goes unchecked. That's not who God is. So Moses here appeals to God's greater glory. So arguing prayer, and now let's think about this greater glory. Verse 20, then the Lord responds, right? He says, I do forgive just as you have asked. Nevertheless, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the people who have seen my glory, the signs, and have tested me will see it in this land of promise. So God sides with Moses' argument. He seems to change his mind, right? He, he engages in this practice of forgiveness, and yet in a way that's not dismissive of their sin or of their rebellion or really of their refusal of his presence of deliverance. Now, this is a really interesting Bible's text, right? A scriptural story because, and actually if you sort of, if you begin to wade into it, you'll begin to realize that a lot of theological ink has been spilled over a text like this over the course of the years. And it's because God seems to change his mind here, or God does change his mind here, right? There's a shift, there's a change in the argument that God begins to side with. And theologians want to know, well, how is it possible, right, for a God who knows all things, who exists outside of time, to 
have a conversation like this, to engage us in real life conversation. But at that point, what I want to shift back to is what we just observed through Robert Jensen, and that is that this, that God, the God of the Bible is always striking up real conversations with real people in real time. One of the things, as we've talked about vision and mission in the church and in our staff meetings, uh, Liz uh, Vobrel, who is our communications director, she'll often say to me, Tuck, you know, vision can't be floaty. And what she means is it's always got to be feet on the ground. We've got to be living a real life in real moment, in real time, right? In terms of thinking about vision, it's also that way in thinking about our life with God. God is a God who comes to us in real moments of life in real time, takes up a real living conversation with his people. And we see that here, and it means this back and forthness of argument, of prayer, of conversation inside of this larger context of surrender. The God of the Bible is always entering time, always entering the real stuff of our life, always engaging our real experiences. So what are your real experiences this morning as you've gathered for worship? What's on your mind? What does wilderness look like to you this morning in the context of your real life? Where are you ambivalent about surrender to God in the context of your real life, real decisions you have to make? What would it look like to trust that he actually engages the real you, the real moments of your life, the real things in your life, and he actually would give you daily bread as Jesus teaches us to pray? This is the way we need to interact with this God. Moses bows down, he surrenders in trust to God. He speaks in an unfiltered way with God and God seems to speak back in an unfiltered way with Moses. This is vulnerable intimacy in their life together. In this case, there's a moment or an aspect of poetic justice, perhaps, because the people are steadily refusing God. They want to die in the wilderness or have died in Egypt, and God says, have it your way. You will die in the wilderness. But Caleb and Joshua and those who are with them, who are like them, the next generation will go into the land, and they will experience the next iteration of the display of God's glory in the land of milk and honey. God will keep revealing himself as the glorious one of covenantal love across time. He won't give up on humanity. He won't give up on his people. Now, how do we engage a story like this in the context of our own lives? On the surface, right, this is a story about trust and our struggle to submit to the God who loves us our struggle with trusting God, our struggle and ambivalence around surrendering to the God of love, especially in the face of real life experiences that leave us in places of fear and overly uh, dependent on our own selves and what we can imagine for ourselves. And that is how every human being lives ordinarily. But if God has interjected himself into the world in real time, in real places, maybe he wants to change the way we imagine the future. Maybe he wants to change the way we imagine our present in the midst of whatever struggle we're in or in the midst of whatever joy that you're in. How will you relate to this God? Maybe he wants us and he invites us to trust him in such a way that we take up the risks of the kingdom of God differently than we would have if all we had to work with were ourselves. 
the toolkit of our own stories, the toolkit of our own resources, what would it look like for you to live inside of your human life, your vocational calling, your sense of self, if you knew that the God of love looked on you and said, you are my beloved child and my favor rests upon you because of my presence, you can live differently. As we sort of read on in the story of Scripture, Caleb and Joshua will go into the land. They will experience that next iteration. But as you read through the story of Israel, you will discover that the conversation will what? It will falter over and over and over again. And ultimately, God will speak in a very different way, in a very unique way, in the person of Jesus, his only son. It's a beautiful idea to think about that the God who has spoken in various ways across time will suddenly and surprisingly write his own story as a human being in our world. I can't think of a greater display of God's humility than the incarnation of Jesus. God bends his very self to the limitations of a human body who will walk through literal wildernesses as you and I walk through literal wildernesses, and who will experience this bond between God and between neighbor, loving God, loving neighbor, in the context of a very non-ideal human existence, and yet will who only ever reveal love, who will only ever reveal mercy, who will only ever reveal the possibility of forgiveness, who will only ever keep moving the story of God's glory into its next chapter. The gospel reading this morning takes us into that part of Jesus' life following his baptism, and his baptism is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture because it's that beautiful moment when God in person in our world shows up and he says, I will identify fully with human beings in their dustness, their sinfulness. I will be baptized. And in that moment, the father says, you are my beloved son, my beloved child, and upon you my favor rests. And the Trinity shows up, right? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they're all there. And in that next moment, the gospel writers tell us that Jesus is taken by the Spirit, propelled by the Spirit into the wilderness spaces, which is really where the rest of his life, his human life, will unfold in this earthly wilderness. But here in this concentrated story, this unique moment of temptation, what is Jesus challenged to do? It is just this. Will you express your sense of being human by listening to the voice of God over your life or by all of the other voices that are encapsulated in these temptations of the devil in the wilderness? And Jesus' response, of course, is to stick with God. It's to fall down on the ground as Moses and Aaron fell down on the ground. It's to sort of surrender to the God who loves him, to sort of live beneath the story of his love for him so that everything else that you read in the, in the gospel stories about Jesus, all of the beautiful places of providing food for the hungry, all of the beautiful places of taking sick people and healing them and through touch and through presence, 
all of the places of including the marginalized into the very center and core of the community of God's people, all of these remarkable activities speaking truth to power, all of them emanate from the central truth that Jesus understood himself to be what? You are my beloved son. My favor rests upon you. And so all of his human interactions reveal that God to other human beings. And all of those interactions invited those who watched on and invites us now as we read back on the story of Jesus and as we encounter his story unfolding in the life of Christians today, invites us to be people that do what? That surrender, that trust God, that lean into him. We let his words shape us, his love shape us. Rowan Williams points out that self-dependence, that is leaning only into what we can do for ourselves in the face of such an invitation to trust is actually a thinly veiled self-hatred. Have you ever thought about your ambivalence as a thinly veiled form of self-hatred? But what God invites each of us to do this morning is to love ourselves and to love ourselves by being loved by God. To cling to self-dependence in the face of God's invitation to trust is a thinly veiled self-hatred. In Jesus' day, the Jews and the Gentile community alike clinging to what made sense inside of their world, their understanding of themselves, their understanding of what ought to be, their sense of self-interest and self-preservation, all of that, in the face of that, what does Jesus keep revealing to people about God? That he loves you. And he moves steadily into the space of his own death. Jesus kept loving God and neighbor. Not my will, but yours be done, he said over and over again. So let me ask us this. How is God inviting us individually as two churches merging together inside of whatever realities are happening in your personal lives or our social lives or our political lives, how is he inviting us to live beneath the truthfulness of his love for us as we take some next step of surrendering to his love? May God give us grace to do so. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.